Again this morning by uttering three very important words. Welcome back, Micah. <laughs> we have missed you. It is unbelievable to have you on the kit. It adds so much to our worship. And not only want to welcome Micah back, but all of the college students. And if you're here visiting family or friends, uh, it's so good to have you worshiping with us today. One brief announcement before we open the Word of God. Uh, Next week, we'll begin a new round of Veritas classes. We will have two classes for adults. Uh, Tom Junkabas will continue his uh, class on uh, the life and ministry and the worldview of Dr. Francis Schaefer. So that'll be part two, if you're interested in that. And then yours truly will be teaching a class called the Bible Study Toolbox. And uh, I gave a a brief introduction this morning. I'm going to bring my toolbox. And Ken, you know how many tools I have. And I'm going to dump them on the floor. I think I have four. (laughs) And uh, we are, hopefully we'll all have more tools in the Bible Study Toolbox than I have in my personal toolbox. Uh, It'll be a big problem. So... We're happy to have you come to one of those two classes and join together in studying the Word of God together. For today, would you open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to take a brief detour from our study in the Gospel of John and uh, do a new series that I've entitled um, Down to Earth, Philippians chapter 2. Last week I made reference to a song, and I actually made a a confession about that song. And you remember the title of that song, and you all sang it with me. And I must say, it was lovely. It was really amazing. I received several comments about how beautiful your singing was. But the title of that song is, Jesus Loves Me. This is a song that explains some very basic theology concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Within the song, there is an assumption, of course, that Jesus Christ exists. The very basis of the song, we learn the reality that Jesus loves me. We learn that Jesus is very strong. And the way we know these things is spelled out in the lyrics of the song, The Bible Tells Me So. My fear is that oftentimes in the Christian life, we... We stop with this very profound truth. And I believe that we as followers of Christ, whether you're very young or more mature and have been following Jesus for quite some time, that we need to go beyond the Jesus loves me, this I know. That is, we must... As we learned about in Veritas this morning, we must know about Jesus. We must cherish him not only in the mind, but also in the heart. We must draw near to Jesus. We must worship the Lord Jesus Christ in his resplendent majesty and holiness. In other words, it is not enough to merely know the very basics about the Lord Jesus Christ. We must examine, you see, what we believe about him. And we go, we take that knowledge and we grow in our relationship with Jesus. We cultivate that relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The great Welsh pastor, Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones, who began his career, I might add, as a physician. And he is, or should I say, was a physician turned pastor, a man who has greatly influenced my life, who uttered these words 
The New Testament, he says, is concerned about definitions. And there is nothing I I should suggest that is further removed from its teaching than to say, quote, it's all right so long as you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It does not matter very much what you say in detail, close quote. And so as we move into this season of Advent, I want to invite you to join together in uncovering the riches and the depth of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, we've entitled this short study, this short series, Down to Earth, which means that we will, once again, take a detour from our study in the Gospel of John. And this is essentially my prayer over the next several weeks, that we will gain over the next few weeks a, a fuller vision of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we will grasp who he is, that we will not be content with merely seeing the Lord Jesus Christ, but that we would also savor the Lord Jesus Christ. We must see him as well as savoring him. The title of the message this morning is Name Above All Names. And I want to have you open to Philippians 2 if you're not already there and gaze at one or two verses with me. And would you stand to your feet as we read these together? Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. Therefore, Paul says, God has highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Our Father, as we enter into yet another Advent season, my prayer is that we would not grow weary of of walking through a a set of rituals or traditions, but but each year uh, the gospel would become more real to us, more alive, more vivid, more clear, that we would uh, cherish the Lord Jesus even more than we did the year before. God, I pray that as we look at some basic truths that we would uh, not only see the Lord Jesus Christ, but that we would also savor him, that we would worship him in all of his holiness, that we would see him for who he is presented in the word of God, that we would be careful to remove any uh, man-made ideology that we have placed upon the Lord Jesus. Rather, we want to see him as the scripture presents him. And so would you be so kind to help us to help remove any hardness from our hearts, uh, any cloudiness from our eyes, any cobwebs from our minds, so that we would see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his fullness and his glory and his majesty and his splendor. Would you be so kind to come, Holy Spirit, and encourage these dear people Would you strengthen them? Would you revive them? Would you grant them grace to to go another day for the glory of God? And so we look forward to this time together, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, if we are to have a biblical 
understanding of Jesus, which enables us to both see him and savor him, I believe that we must begin in a place that may surprise some of you. We begin in a place that may even shock you as we enter into this Christmas season. Most would be tempted to, and rightly so, turn to the book of Luke or the book of Mark or the book of Matthew or the book of John. Or even to look at some of the pastoral epistles to learn about the weighty theology that informs us about the person and work of Jesus Christ. But I want to have you begin this morning by turning to the Old Testament. And I want you to look at Jesus as he's presented in the pages of the Old Testament. The sermon this morning will be a little bit different than the texture and the tone of most sermons as we, or I should say, I will not be expositing a a specific passage. This will be more topical in nature, just to forewarn you. As we turn to the pages of the Old Testament, I want to begin by looking at the first promise that concerns the Lord Jesus Christ. And this may come as a surprise to some of you as well, if you are unfamiliar with this first promise. And I want to begin by looking at at the prohibition that precedes the promise. And have you turn with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. This will be very familiar to most of you as we look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. As the Lord is communicating with the first father, Adam. And in verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, or Adam, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely eat die. We know the rest of the story. We know that the first couple disobeys. They they violate this prohibition and the first couple sins by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and ended up, as one writer wisely writes, by bringing the cosmos into ruin. It was one bite that brought the cosmos into ruin. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 7 tells us, Everyone who is called by my name. I don't want to stop and have you consider that first word, everyone, and ask you, and feel free to yell it out if you would like, who does everyone include? All of us. Thanks, Vince. The rest of them, I I think they thought it was a trick question. When we see in Isaiah 43, the writer says, Everyone who is called by my name, which includes everyone, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. That is to say, every living person was created by a sovereign God. And this sovereign God created Every man, every woman, every boy, and every girl, first and foremost, to glorify his great and mighty name. Paul reiterates this great reality in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. You know it well. He says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That is to say, every deed, every action, every word... 
Every breath, every transaction, every race we run, every game we play, every call we make, every lesson we teach, every child we raise, even every morsel of food we eat should all be done to the glory of God. Jareen and I have a friend in LaGrande, and she has a saying that she loves to wake up in the morning, and she always goes to the coffee pot, and she drinks not one, but two cups of coffee, and she does it to the glory of God. That's some very basic advice for living the Christian life. But here's the problem. The problem that most of us learned as young children is this, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we've seen this prohibition that Adam was charged to to eat of any of the, the fruit of the trees except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve disobeyed that prohibition. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12 paints this horrible portrait as Paul the Apostle says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And so now, with the virus of sin in the cosmos, with the virus of sin on this planet, sin now has been exposed, and now the blame game begins. And it goes something like this. It was this woman you put in the garden. And the woman says, it was this snake you put in the garden. I don't know how many people have said to me as pastor, if you would have held me more accountable, I wouldn't have committed that sin. Does that surprise you? I remember the first time it happened. I was a young youth pastor. And a dear friend of mine, a a young man who I was discipling, had a wonderful relationship with and and continue to be in contact with him to this day. Now he has a, a, a wonderful family and is living for the Lord. But he, my friend, committed a, a, a very sinful act early on in our friendship. I'll never forget the day he called me. He called me early in the morning. It was a holiday, I remember in particular. And he said, we, we need to meet. We need to have breakfast. I have some things to share with you. And he shared with me the sin that he had engaged in and, and repented or appeared to repent of that sin. But I was suspicious because he pointed his finger in my face and said, if you would have held me more accountable, I never would have done that. You see, that's the pattern of a, a cosmos that has been ravaged by sin. Whenever a person commits sin, there's only one person to blame. Or three, if you're not good at math like me. Me, myself, and I. There is no one else to blame. Yet that's the pattern that we see. It was her fault. It was his fault. It was their fault. And if you look over in Genesis chapter 3, beginning of verse 14, we see that God pronounces some words of judgment. Let me read this section of Scripture and we'll come back to review it briefly. The Lord God, as he pronounces these judgments, says to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 
skip verse 15 for now and go to the latter portion of verse 15. I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, he says to Eve and every subsequent woman. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire, he says to Eve, shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall Return. Here we see the judgment is pronounced on Adam in the verses that we just read, which relates to his task of gardening and his calling to, to in the final analysis, to turn the whole world into a garden for God. Then there is the judgment pronounced on Eve that you see in the latter portion of verse 15, which specifically relates to not only childbearing, and that is the the place we normally turn. We recognize, and women especially recognize, the pain of childbirth and how that is associated with the, the original curse, the result of the sin that Adam and Eve brought into the cosmos. But there is another judgment pronounced on Eve that I want to, to share with you in brief. Here God says to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband. That is to say that the, there is a propensity in women to usurp the authority of their husbands. And men, it doesn't end with the curse on the wife. We are also affected here, as God says, and he shall rule over you. So just as there is a propensity for women to usurp the the God-given authority of their husbands, we also see that the man has a propensity to be a dictator. A man has a propensity to to dominate his wife, to be heavy-handed with his wife. And whenever you have a marriage where a man is heavy-handed and a woman wants to usurp the authority of her husband, that usually ends up in counseling. And I should say should end up in counseling because the man needs to learn to be a servant. He needs to serve his wife and the woman needs to learn to submit to the authority of of her God-given husband. We also see that there is a judgment pronounced on the serpent at the beginning of those verses. But tucked away in this section of Scripture is a mighty promise, and it's the promise that I passed over, and this is where I want to focus most of our attention at this point. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I want to give you the the word, and it's going to be a a big word, and it'll be a new word for some of you. But it's a word I want you to remember all the rest of your days. And here's the word. It is the word proto-evangelium. Proto-evangelium. I vividly remember hearing this word when I was 18 years old. I was a freshman. I see some of you kind of laughing, going, oh, my word. That was my response, too. There I am sitting in a class with Ron Frost 
And I remember the day he uttered the words proto-evangelium. And this is my thought. And if, if you have a similar thought, I sympathize with you. I thought to myself, let me out of here. <laughs> I can barely spell that, let alone say it. It's two words smashed together. The word proto is the word translated first. Proto means first, and then you can probably gather what evangel means. It's the, it's the root word for gospel. And so if you would like to forget proto-evangelium, here's what you do need to remember. The proto-evangelium is the first gospel. The first gospel. And as my professor shared this great reality of the proto-evangelium, now I felt horrible for wanting to exit the classroom. Because here we find the very first inclination of hope on the heels of the fall. And it's right on the heels of the fall. This is the first indication that something would happen in the future that would give you and I hope. I want to read this verse for you out of the New International Version. It's translated as follows. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It's a verse that I'm sure I had read several times as a young man and as a a teenager growing up in my experience in the church. But it's something that I had never, ever thought about. And this is what we learn in the Proto-Evangelium. This is what we learn in the first gospel. We learn that a woman will bear a child and that this child will literally crush the head of the serpent. But we also learn that the heel of the Redeemer will be stricken. Romans chapter 16, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The first gospel, you see, promises a deliverer. The first gospel promises a Messiah, the God-man, who will redeem a people for himself, and his name is Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, we find that Jesus then becomes the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies and promises that finds its origin in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 24, all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. This is the first promise concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, the the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. But I want you to also turn your attention now and to think very broadly as we look at the Old Testament, some of the Old Testament promises or prophecies rather concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we do that, I want to have you remember to think once again broadly and to think biblically and to think carefully and to remember That as we learn about the Lord Jesus Christ, we're talking about the second member of the Godhead, the one who has existed from all eternity. The Lord Jesus Christ, you see, does not have a beginning. And we learned about that earlier in the service, as as Ken read from Revelation, that Jesus is the, the Alpha 
and the Omega, the, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Do you recall Jesus who said to the religious rulers, before Abraham was, I am. That is, he has always existed. He will always exist. You cannot attach a, a, a number to how many years he's existed because he is infinite. He is eternal. And so one of the goals in our study as we learn about the God-man, is to see that Jesus Christ is infinite. He is eternal. He possesses all the attributes of God. Once again, my goal is not to exposit these passages in any great detail. Rather, I want you to see the broad sweep of redemptive history, which includes some very important Old Testament promises concerning the coming Christ. Uh, Look at the first of several. If you turn with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 2, Psalm chapter 2, and I was going to conceal this until the end of the message, and I think I would I should probably better I should probably share it with you now, and then I'll rehearse it at the end. My goal this morning, one of my chief goals, is to help you get in the habit of reading the Old Testament with Jesus in mind. I remember when I was very new in the Christian faith, I, I never saw Jesus in the Old Testament. It's probably why I missed the promise of his coming in Genesis 3, verse 15. Is I would always turn my attention to the New Testament. And indeed, we find Jesus throughout the New Testament. But we also find Jesus all throughout the Old Testament. And so, would you make it your goal, as you read the Word of God, to to look for Jesus. To look for Jesus in the pages of the Old Testament. Now look with me at Psalm chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. As the psalmist says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Do you see Jesus? Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge. In him that is blessed are all who take refuge in the son. The noted British pastor Charles Haddon Spurgeon says we shall not greatly err in our summary of this sublime psalm. If we call it the psalm of Messiah, the prince. For it sets forth as in a a wondrous vision of the tumult of the people against the Lord's anointed. The determinate purpose of God to exalt his own son, as we've seen in Philippians 2. And the ultimate reign of that son over all his enemies. As you look across the, the vast and horrible problems that we see in our culture... I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes it just gets to you. Sometimes you wonder with 
terrorism and ISIS and Al-Qaeda and all that's happening around the world, not just here in the state of Washington, but all around the world, where's it all going to go? Is there any hope? No, from the word of God, that the son will ultimately reign over all his enemies. I want you to also see the son in the book of Isaiah. And this is most likely the the most uh, familiar passage to you as we will look at several passages from the Old Testament. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 6. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And see if you can see the Lord Jesus Christ over 700 years before his incarnation. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Warren Wiersbe says this of Isaiah chapter 9. He says Isaiah 9 6 declares both the humanity that is, a child is born, and the deity, that is, a son is given of the Lord Jesus Christ. The prophet then leaps ahead to the kingdom age when Messiah will reign in righteousness and justice from David's throne. God had promised David that his dynasty and throne would be established forever. And this is fulfilled literally in Jesus Christ, who will one day reign from Jerusalem. And this kingdom... Is called the millennium, which means 1,000 years. And the phrase is used, Wiersbe says, six times in Revelation chapter 20. See, this is a prophecy, once again, of the coming of the Lord Jesus, who will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Turn over one book with me to Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23, and I want to have you look with me at one verse. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 6. In the days, or in his days rather, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. One commentator says it like this. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this prediction. As king, he will reign wisely and he will do what is just and right. And though Christ offered himself as Israel's Messiah at his first advent, at his first coming... The final fulfillment of this prophecy awaits his second advent immediately before his millennial reign. Look at one other passage with me in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. And read with me in verses 13 and 14. One of my best friends, a pastor in the Bay Area, is preaching expositionally through Daniel right now. 
I haven't reached that point yet. I'm scared. Uh, Daniel is a tough book. And so, Lord willing, we'll get there someday. Verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. One commentator rightly comments on this passage, One day every knee will bow before the rightful authority of Jesus Christ. It is what Daniel says, all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. And Paul said the same thing, arguing, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and on under earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As we enter this Advent season... If you are a follower of Jesus, remember, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that should make your heart leap. For you will be numbered among the worshipers. However, if you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, if you have rejected the kingly authority of the Messiah, if you have turned from the imperatives of Jesus, if you have turned from the invitation to come and drink freely from the waters where you receive salvation, this verse also applies to you. This verse tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and God will separate the the sheeps from the goats. Those who worship willingly will spend eternity in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ and those who reject the kingly authority of Jesus will spend the rest of all eternity paying the price of all their sin in hell, rightly receiving eternal judgment. Turn also with me back to Psalm, Psalm chapter 110, Psalm chapter 110 and verse 1. This has been labeled by many the, the great messianic psalm. Some refer to Psalm chapter 110, verse 1, the greatest messianic psalm. And it reads as follows. The Lord, or Yahweh, says to my Lord. Literally, Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The former pastor of 10th Presbyterian church in philadelphia james boyce says that psalm 110 is entirely about a divine king who has been installed at the right hand of god in heaven and who is presently engaged in extending his spiritual rule throughout the whole earth it tells that this divine messiah is also a priest performing priestly functions and that additionally he is a judge 
who at the end of time will execute a final judgment on the nations and rulers of this earth, as we've already seen in Philippians 2. Then would you turn over to the book of Micah. Toward the end of the Old Testament, moving towards the end of the Old Testament, Micah chapter 5. And look with me at a few verses beginning in verse 2. And as we read Micah chapter 5, beginning in verse 2, would you remember, as I noted a few moments ago, about the eternity of Jesus, that he is the one who is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, and one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And then the rest of his brothers shall return and the people of Israel. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty and the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. He shall be their peace. And you remember, as Jesus told his disciples, that my peace I give to you. Not peace that the world gives, but peace I give to you. I don't know what you're struggling with today. I don't know if it's physical hardship. I don't know if it's wrestling with anxiety or fear or loneliness. Whatever it is that you struggle with, the Lord Jesus Christ is your peace. Over to the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. One verse that points to the future millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple... And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then would you look at one final scripture with me in Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9. Once again, a scripture that points to the future millennial reign of Christ. Verse 9 says, The Lord will be king over all the earth, and on that day the Lord will be one, and his name one. You see, this is the, the coming Christ who is presented in the page, rather the pages of the Old Testament. And so I want to encourage you as you're, as you're reading the Word of God, as you're reading the Old Testament, to, to be on the lookout for Jesus because you'll see him all the way from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi. There's one final scripture. I think I told you a moment earlier that that was the last one. That was the last Old Testament passage. Would you turn to the pages of the New Testament to close this morning to Luke chapter 2. 
as we come full circle. And I love this story in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 25, about Simeon. Simeon is an old man, and beginning in verse 25, we read, Now there is a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Can you imagine being Simeon? That is a a specific promise designed for him and him alone, that he would not die until he gazed upon the Christ. The scripture continues, and he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him. Simeon took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. This godly man, this one whom relied on the, the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit, waited patiently. He waited day after day after day in great expectation for the Messiah. He did not have the pleasure, like many, of gazing upon the earthly ministry of Jesus, including his work on the cross for sinners. But he he got to hold the Christ child in his arms. And in that moment, he, he saw Jesus... And he savored Jesus. He believed the promise of God. And now the promise was fulfilled. You and I now are able to see the broad sweep of redemptive history. We have seen the promise of a redeemer as it emerges in Genesis 3.15. We have seen a, a few of the Old Testament promises that indicate that the Lord Jesus would come. That he, he would pay the price of all our sin. But now this morning, my challenge for you is this. is Do you see Jesus and do you savor Jesus? Is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? The Ironmen know that I have been on a bit of a, a tirade this year, you might say, and encouraging the men that come on Tuesday night to be men of the book, to be Bible men and I think I've mentioned this the past several weeks because I'm so excited because the men are actually doing it. Ladies, wives, your men are becoming Bible men. Some of them already were Bible men. Some of them were not Bible men, and they're becoming Bible men. They're cultivating that relationship with the living God by spending time in the Word of God. I would argue this morning that the best way to cultivate that relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is to be Bible men. Ladies, to be Bible women. Boys, to be Bible boys. Girls, to be Bible girls. To spend time in the Word of God. The challenge before us this morning is, are we cultivating that relationship with Jesus? 
I remember when Jereen and I were first married. I don't know if you remember this, Jereen, but we went to one of those. It was a young adult thing at church, and we did one of those newlywed games. You know, those they're horrible. You know, and you're supposed to know what, what size shoe your, your bride's shoe, shoe, shoe she wears. You're supposed to know what her favorite color is. You're supposed to know her favorite TV show. You're supposed to know her favorite toppings on pizzas. And you, this, I'm thinking like a guy, right? Because I am a guy. I'm going, I, I don't know any of this stuff, right? And your bride's going, what a lame I thought you knew me. And sometimes I find it's like that in the Christian life as we, we come into relationship with our Savior and we, we get to know Him. We, we learn about Him. We worship Him. We see Him. We savor Him. And then years go by and years go by and things get to drift. And things happen like this. We can't remember where the book of Philippians is. I think it's in the Old Testament, but maybe not. We forget who wrote the book of Exodus. I don't know if I ever learned that along the way. And I'm growing weary. I'm growing growing tired in my Christian life. And we ask ourselves, are we cultivating, like men cultivate a relationship with their wives, are we cultivating that relationship with Jesus primarily by spending time in his word, by spending time in prayer, by confessing our sins, by, by bringing everything, every prayer and petition to God in prayer. There's that beautiful, that wonderful promise in Philippians 3 that we are to bring everything to the feet of Jesus. Peter tells us something similar, that we are to take our anxiety and we cast our anxiety upon him. Why? Because he cares for us. And so are you telling Jesus about your fears? Are you telling Jesus about your anxiety? Are you telling Jesus about your your hopes and your dreams and your longings? Are you confessing your sin to him? Are you worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ? Spurgeon said it like this. There do meet in Jesus Christ infinite highness and infinite condensation. Christ, as he is God, is infinitely great and high above all. He is higher than the king of the earth, for he is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of lords. Christ is the creator and the great possessor of heaven and earth. He is the sovereign Lord of all. He rules over the whole universe. He does whatever he pleases. His knowledge is without bound. His wisdom is perfect and what none can circumvent. His power is infinite. None can resist him. His majesty is infinitely awful. A-W-F-U-L. You might say awesome. At the end of the age, when all is said and done, the Bible says this. We shall see Jesus face to face. John the Apostle says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And not what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Alistair Begg says we shall see Jesus as the seed of the woman who crushed the serpent's head. 
as the prophet of God whose word directs our lives, as the great high priest who intercedes for us, and as the king who subdues all our enemies and reigns over us forever, we will recognize him as the Son of Man and as the suffering servant who is now exalted in the Lamb on the throne. On that day, we will see with unclouded vision why his Father has given him the name above all names. I know most of you saw the film, The Passion of the Christ, which came out eight or nine years ago. And there is a scene, and it's a scene that is an extra-biblical scene. And I remember as the scene began to play out, I thought, oh... They're getting way, way too much license. I don't know if you're, if you're wired like that. Oh, this isn't in the Bible. I don't like it, was my first thought. And the snake emerged in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember this scene? There is no snake in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what Mel Gibson did in that scene was to, to display really a stunning knowledge of redemptive history. While there was no snake in the Garden of Gethsemane, what happened in that scene is the Lord Jesus Christ took his foot and stamped on the foot of the snake. That is the promise of Genesis 3.15. And that is only a mere image of the promise because then the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross and utterly smashed the head of the snake. And so at this Advent season, we have victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been saved from the the power of sin and we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Do you know this snake crushing Savior? Do you find your satisfaction in Him? Have you turned over everything to Jesus? Have you trusted Him? Is He your Savior? Is He your Lord? Is He your King? Is He your CEO? Is He your boss? Is He your best friend? My prayer is that we study. And learn about the God-man, Jesus Christ, over the next several weeks. Is that we would cultivate relationship with him. That we would spend time in the word of God. That we would spend time on our knees before God. And that we would cultivate that intimate relationship with our Savior. The one who has been granted the title, King of Kings. The one who is pronounced as name above all names. We pray with me. A Father, as we enter uh, into another Christmas season, would you continually remind us of these unbelievable realities? We thank you for the hope that we possess in Christ. We thank you for the promises that are ours in Christ. Thank you for rescuing us from the power of sin, Jesus. Thank you for rescuing us from the penalty of sin, Lord Jesus, and seating us in the heavenlies. We claim the promise that we are are new creatures. We claim the promise that our sins are separated as far as the east is from the west, buried in the deepest of seas and hidden behind God's back. We thank you for salvation that is free. We thank you for the chance to come to the God of the universe in simple faith, receiving these great and magnanimous promises. And so we rest in these promises. And as we sing, remind us of these promises. And 
Help us now to celebrate of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.